Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Have you ever experienced something that rocked your world and changed you for good? Rocked your world and changed you for good. People who were torpedoed in boats during the Second World War, some of them were were lost in the water and crying out for help, and rescue boats came along and and heard them and fished them out and took them back, and they ended up living back in in Britain. And some of those people later said that the the experience, which obviously rocked their world, uh, had given them a deep change in in their heart and mind. And they contrasted the sound of voices that they, could rem- they never forgot of people in the water crying out for help, crying to be rescued. The sound of those voices with the sound of people complaining in shops. See, the experience had rocked their world and changed them, given a different perspective. Now, at Grace Church, we're studying a part of the Bible called Isaiah. You see his name written large there. It's written by a man called Isaiah. He was a prophet. He spoke God's word to the people around about 700 years B.C., so a good 2,700 years ago. This is an old piece of literature. And today we read about an experience that rocked Isaiah's world and changed him forever. Because Isaiah had an encounter with God. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, what's exceptional about that? I thought the Bible was all about God squad stuff. You know, God botherers having encounters with God and then being godly. The answer is, not like this. Not like this. You see, most people tend to think of God as either a bank manager or a heavenly granddad. Bank manager. I know I've got to tread carefully because of our colleagues from Barclays here today. So we're not going to be rude about bankers. Jonathan Aitken was a cabinet minister, the Tory government. He was powerful, influential, wealthy man. He was touted even on occasions as a future prime minister. But his political career ended suddenly when he was caught lying under oath. In 1999, he pleaded guilty to charges of perjury, and for his crime, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. A divorce followed. Then bankruptcy, since he was unable to pay for the legal costs of his trial. He lost everything, or so it seemed. In prison, he discovered Jesus Christ. Now, prior to this humbling journey, Aitken described himself as a dutiful Christian, He went to church, he said the right things, but he failed to do the right things in his life. He said his faith was flawed. And this is what he said. I rather treated God as though he were my bank manager, but I thought I was in charge of the account so I could get away with what I wanted. And that is not a Christian life, but a self-centered and proud life. See, he didn't want a relationship with God, just as most of you probably don't want an intimate relationship with your bank manager. I suspect. He just wanted to stay in credit and have enough to keep him out of debt. Now, other people don't think of God in those terms, if they think of him at all. They think of God, or they prefer the idea of a sort of heavenly granddad. C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature at Oxford and then Cambridge Universities. And Lewis wrote this. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of everything we happen to like, what does it matter? so long as they're contented. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, likes to see young people enjoying themselves. 
and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be said at the end of each day, a jolly good time was had by all. But when Isaiah really sees the living God, he's not like a heavenly granddad, and he's not like your bank manager. See, the essence of the bank manager is that you have to keep him happy, and the essence of a granddad is he gets to keep you happy. But when God really shows up, it's not about you at all. The experience is absolutely overwhelming. In fact, for this man Isaiah, it was devastating. The ship of Isaiah's life just got torpedoed, and he's in the water. It changes him forever, and it actually changed him for good. It changed his views on life, it changed his views on history, it changed his views on what was, what was really important, it changed everything about him, it changed the rest of his existence. In fact, scholars believe that this chapter 6 of uh, Isaiah's book is where his life's work really began, and the rest of the book flows out of this transforming encounter with the real God. You see, before this, Isaiah was a believer. He believed all the right things, but it wasn't really real. And then one day he went to the temple. And like most people who go to church, the last person he expected to meet was God. But God showed up that day and rocked his world. Now, why was it so intense? There are two reasons. He saw what God is really like, and he saw what we are really like. Firstly, he saw what God is really like. And I want to point out one thing before I dive into this, which is what Isaiah sees is a vision. It's not directly understood in terms of physical happenings. When the angel flies to him with a burning coal in his hand and touches his lips, it wasn't a physical coal burning his lips. It's not a physical experience, but it is a glimpse of reality. It's like uh, the curtain gets pulled back and he sees into heaven. He gets a glimpse into spiritual reality, what is really real. And he sees behind the scenes. And it's as if he's allowed to see God in his throne room. And he, he sees what God is really like. And he sees three things. Majesty, holiness, and glory. Majesty, first of all. The first big impression of God is that he is a great King, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This King is high and exalted. He's seated on a throne, imagery of power. And it says, the train of his robe fills the temple. The train of his robe. Now you have to use your imagination for a moment to get a sense of what this is like and a sense of the scale. Isaiah goes into the biggest building in his culture, the temple. And he sees God seated on a throne high above and the train of God's robe fills the room. Now what's the train? It's the hem. It's the hem at the bottom of the room. It's that bit there. And that bit fills the whole of this vast structure which the ceiling would be higher than this. And so he's absolutely overwhelmed and he's thinking, just how big is this God? And God is not alone. In heaven, there are heavenly beings there that with him we might call them angels. Isaiah uses the word seraphim. Now, seraphim literally means burning ones. They're so bright, they're like living flames. And they're flying around, calling out in this vision. They, they, they shine so brightly. But, but even those bright ones don't look directly at God. They cover their eyes and cover their face with their wings, and they cover their feet as well. 
and they are calling out, captivated by God, what he's really like. And they call out in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So firstly, what is God really like? Majestic. Majestic. Secondly, he's also holy. That's the one thing that of all the things these angels could say, they say this word, holy. It's the one standout characteristic of God. Now, scholars point out that when the Hebrew writers want to emphasize something, they double it. They say it twice. It doesn't often come out in our English version, but it's there in the original language. So when they want to talk about really good gold, they talk about, they say in the Hebrew, gold, gold. They double it, you see. It's a way of giving emphasis. But there's only one place in the whole of the Hebrew Bible where they give triple emphasis. It's here. Holy, holy, holy. This then is the most emphatic thing you could say about God. This is the essence of who he is. He is holy. But what does it mean? There are two aspects to holiness. Firstly, it means he's moral. God is moral. He's absolutely good. He has absolute integrity. He is absolutely truthful all the time. He's always just. He never does anything wrong. He never sins. God is moral. But there's another aspect to holiness, and it's this. God is different. He's distinctive. He's unique. He's absolutely different in terms of his being from any one of us. Now, we need to hear that because a lot of our thoughts, when we tend to think about God, we sort of assume that he's basically like one of us. And I wouldn't do it like that if I was God. That's the point. You're not God. He's holy. He's totally distinct from us. He's a different kind of being. Just look at these angels flying around. These are heavenly beings. They're around God all the time. You might think they would kind of get used to him. But they are captivated by his majesty and his beauty and his holiness. And they say, holy, holy, holy. And the third thing that Isaiah sees about God is that he's glorious. Glory. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, what is glory? The basic idea is that it's really weighty and heavy and substantial. Things are glorious that are lasting and valuable and substantial. So God is weighty. He's permanent. He's not easily blown over. He's really real. So you could say that gold is glorious. Paper is useful. Gold is glorious. It lasts. It's heavy. Shiny. And those who see God realize he's the one utterly real being. He so really makes everything else seem paper thin. And so when the most weighty one shows up, the earth quakes. The temple, this great building that Isaiah was going to, the doorposts and the threshold are shaking. It's not safe to go in. It's full of smoke. It's not safe to look. Do you get a sense of how great this God is? His majesty, his holiness, his glory. That's what he's like. Let me see the next slide. The distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. Between the earth and the sun. If that was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, okay, the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, if it was reduced to that thickness, 
then the distance between the Earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. That's how near it is to the nearest star. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. This is actually a photo from the Hubble telescope. But the galaxy, where we live, is nothing but a speck of dust when compared to the size of the universe, which is still expanding. And the Bible says that God holds this universe together by the word of his power. Now, is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? So here's the thing. When Isaiah encounters God, he is shaken to the court. His world is rocked. And he sees majesty, holiness, glory. And what's his reaction? Actually, God, I've been meaning to ask you this question all these years. No, here's how he reacts. He actually says, woe to me. Verse 5, woe to me. I am ruined. I'm ruined. I'm doomed. I'm destroyed. I can no longer live after what I've seen. Because he's not just seen what God is really like. He's also, like looking in a mirror, seen what we are really like. This is the next point. What we're really like. Well, what are we really like? If you had to describe yourself, I wonder what would be your top three words, say, if you were going on a dating website. Bright, sociable, and fun-loving. That's how I'd describe myself. (laughs) So the loudest laugh is always my wife. (laughs) Not for Isaiah. He's not coming up with sociable and fun-loving. Once he's seen God, there is only one word that comes to mind. And it's not the word that you probably would have put on your dating website. It is unclean. Unclean. Here it is in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Why unclean? Because he's been exposed to the purity and the holiness and perfection of God, his brightness and beauty, and it showed him up. I don't know if you've ever had you know, a, a, a bedspread or something that you thought was white because it was in a dimly lit bedroom and then you took it into the daylight and you thought, whoa, that really needs a wash. Isaiah realizes, he thought he was okay before he went to the temple, he now realizes that he and all his people are unclean. Not physically dirty, but spiritually corrupted. Their minds are soiled by evil. Their hearts produce corruption continually comes out in every imaginable way. Their speech was dirty and full of gossip, malice, and criticism. Their eyes looked at filthy things. Their thoughts were evil all day long. Anybody remember the band, the Pet Shop Boys? I think the Pet Shop Boys captured this better than anyone. Here's what they they sang. Everything I've ever done, everything I ever do, every place I've ever been, everywhere I'm going to, it's a sin. So I look back upon my life forever with a sense of shame. I've always been the one to blame for everything I long to do. No matter when or where or who has one thing in common too, it's a sin. Isaiah basically says, I'm ruined. Time to hand in my letter of resignation as a prophet. An encounter with God has rocked his world. 
He thinks he can never recover. Probably he feels that at that moment he is flammable and God is a naked flame. And then something really strange happens. Really strange moment. One of these angels sees him in his misery and goes over to the altar in the temple, which is a place where they offer sacrifices. And it had the burning coals lighting the fire for the sacrifices. And this angel gets a pair of tongs, picks up a burning coal, red hot coal, still burning. And he brings it over to Isaiah. And I tell you, at that moment, I don't think Isaiah is thinking, great, he's bringing over a burning coal. <laughs> Where are my asbestos gloves? He's thinking, I know what happens when God's fire comes to a human being in the Bible. And it's never good news for the human being. It always means judgment. Sin's being exposed, you're going to be burned up. It's really strange. But then this angel comes with this coal. He comes up to him. And imagine his own in the vision. He's coming over. <laughs> Touches him on the lips. And here's what he says. See, this coal has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. All clear. Not a cloud in the sky between you and God. Everything you've ever done. All that sense of shame. No matter what you did. It's all been taken away. This burning coal has done it. Isaiah's thinking, I don't know how that happened. What happened? I just... Everything's just been changed for me. It's a strange moment. It's it's a symbolic moment. Isaiah didn't do anything to clear his record. Didn't do anything to to win God's affections. It was all of God reaching out to him, coming to him where he was, and doing something strange that changed him. Now, Isaiah never really knew how that worked, but you can, friends. Because there was another time Many years later, about 700 years later, when the temple shook and the earthquake, this time a prophet wasn't going into the temple. This time a prophet was being taken out and hung on a cross to be executed. His name was Jesus. He was being killed, state-sponsored execution. But this was no accident because God was doing something very special at the cross, something he'd been planning all the way along. God was providing a way for sin and guilt to be taken away and forgiven so that men and women, boys and girls, like us, could be welcomed into the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy One so that we could live new, bright, and clean lives. Have you ever experienced something that rocked your world, changed you for good? The live coal that comes and touches ours isn't a coal. It's the work of Jesus that changes us. You may have heard of the, the, the film or the book Les Miserables. I actually thought it was a film about a bloke called Les Miserables. Someone told me it's French. How about that? Les Miserables tells the story of a criminal called Jean Valjean, a tough, bitter man who'd spent 19 years in prison. When he was finally released, he found it impossible to get work or shelter because no one wants anything to do with him. But he's finally taken in by a kindly bishop who gives him food and a place to stay. But in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean creeps downstairs and steals the bishop's silver. What a way to repay. 
but he's quickly caught by the police. And three constables bring him back to the bishop's house and put the silver down and, and, and expose him to the bishop. And things look absolutely desperate for Valjean. The bishop has the opportunity to incriminate him and have him in prison for the rest of his life. But instead, the bishop turns and says, so here you are, I'm delighted to see you. Why did you leave so early? You forgot that I gave you the candlesticks as well. They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? And so the police, who are absolutely perplexed, are forced to release Valjean and they leave the house. And after they've gone, the bishop says, yeah, I've genuinely given it to you. He insists that he keeps the silver and the candlesticks. And a stunned Valjean is released and given all of this riches. And Valjean stutters, why? Why are you doing this? And the bishop replies, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have bought your soul and now I am giving you back to God. Now the bishop could have treated Valjean in one of three ways. Firstly, he could have treated him with justice. He could have given him what he deserved. He could have said, give me back my silver and got the police to have him packed off to prison. That would be justice, just what he deserved. Or he could have treated him with leniency. He could have said, I'll have my silver back, but I won't press charges and I don't want to see him again. That would be leniency, giving him less than he deserves. But the last option that the bishop had is the one he took. He treated him with grace. He says, I know what you've done. I know how you've abused my kindness. Now keep the silver and take these candlesticks too. You can go free. All I ask is that you use the money to change your life for the better. He gives the criminal standing before him a very expensive gift, one that is totally undeserved. That is grace. Treating him with undeserved love and generosity. Now, friends, we will never understand Christianity until we see ourselves in the same position as Valjean. We all stand before God as Valjean stood before the bishop. We are unclean, undone, ruined. We deserve judgment for the way we've abused his love for us, for the way we've ignored him all our lives. But rather than treating us as we deserve, God, in his amazing grace, offers us a live coal. He offers us something that will take away our, our, our sin and guilt. He offers us Jesus. This forgiveness is a gift of God. What God is really like, majestic, holy, glorious, what we are really like, unclean. And But God in his grace reaches out to us and offers that to us. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.